0: Hello and welcome to the Philanthropy Australia podcast. Last year, a new resource appeared in Australia. It was a toolkit for philanthropists, a practical guide to provide support to all philanthropists, not just those who were starting out. The toolkit describes itself as an introduction to giving effectively in Australia, and it's the result of a collaboration between Perpetual in Australia and the Stanford Center on Philanthropy and Civil Society in the United States. In this special longer podcast, we talk to Cat Fay, Managing Partner, Community and Social Investment at Perpetual Private, and Stanford PAC's Senior Fellow, Heather Newbury Lord, about the thinking and approach behind the toolkit, and bringing it out to Australia. Start with that most basic of questions, but really, probably the question that a lot of people new to philanthropy will ask, why do we need a toolkit?
1: I've never met a philanthropist or a philanthropic family who aren't really concerned about being as effective as they possibly can be with their giving, and they obviously want to have impact in the communities that they're working with. So... In many ways, we need a toolkit as a resource to support our own thinking around what constitutes being an effective philanthropist, a strategic philanthropist, and how we actually capture what we're attempting to achieve with our wealth through the act and the art of of, of giving. And sadly, there's not a lot of kind of single resource spaces that are out there. You know, a lot of philanthropists will be out and taking advice from lots of different people and cobbling together lots of different resources to really attempt to pull together their own thinking around what uh, effective and and structured strategic giving should actually be. So bringing together a single toolkit in many ways is, you know, I've been using it almost as a desk companion to just pull off the shelf when I'm thinking about something and I I need to, to tap into some thinking around what should I be suggesting here to a family I'm working with or an individual I'm working with around giving practice or engaging their family or looking at acquittal and and reporting processes. So it's a single stop toolkit to really support philanthropists, not just who are at the beginning of their journeys, but who are at any stage of their philanthropic journey around their thinking on good practice.
2: It warms my heart to hear that people like CAD and companies like Perpetual find the resource useful and the toolkit useful with your clients and with donors. In Australia, I'm coming from the Effective Philanthropy Learning Initiative, at the Stanford Center on Philanthropy and Civil Society, and the goal of our lab is to help donors give more thoughtfully and effectively. And so we developed the toolkit in no small part because one of our funders, Jeff Rakes, who was the former CEO of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, former president of Microsoft's business division, you know, some time ago he stepped away from his role as an institutional funder to partner with his wife Trisha on their own charitable giving. And as they considered their approach, they found a scarcity of resources that were out there for donors. And they've been supporting initiatives like Stanford PACS and our lab aimed at increasing the effectiveness of philanthropic giving. So that was part of the spark for sort of why we do what we do. And so we do education and we develop resources and we do lots of research on donors and donor behavior all with that in mind. And so the toolkit was one of those resources that came out of years of research with hundreds of donors and advisors all across the US um, to really think through what might be most useful and helpful for helping to orient you and sort of walk you through the core concepts and practices and activities and conversations that will help you really have an impact.
0: Up until now, we haven't had the toolkit. How much of that Absence of knowledge and understanding and support that the toolkit provides, do you think has actually perhaps stopped people becoming more philanthropically minded or embarking on their own philanthropic journey?
1: I think what drives people to philanthropy and to giving is the starting point tends to be a a warm heart. I don't think people have been out there sort of searching the ether for something that makes the choice of getting into philanthropy a, a good one. So the starting point is. The toolkit might make it easier for people to be more effective and it might also critically, particularly where we know the trusted advisor plays a critical role in bringing people to philanthropy, it might put in the hands of the trusted advisor something that makes conversations with families and individuals about the opportunity to engage with philanthropy more easy. So I wouldn't say the lack of this type of resources necessarily stopped people from coming, but I think it has the potential to bring more people through their advisors and and ultimately giving people a lot of confidence around their practice and the art of of philanthropy. I think having a singular set of resources as well that have been researched to within an inch of their life (laughs) is also quite handy because a lot of the families and individuals I speak to, they're so desperate not to get it wrong having the confidence by utilising something like this toolkit where you know there's academic rigour behind it, you know it's been peer-reviewed, it's been tested time and time again. It's got individuals like Jeff Rakes kind of saying, thank you, this is exactly what I needed to get on with um, my, my personal philanthropy sort of standing behind it. I think it's going to give people a lot of confidence to do more philanthropy as well, given that they'll have that confidence that it does have that rigour sitting behind it.
2: I would add to that that... We've designed the toolkit in many ways around the places where people can get stuck or overwhelmed. So whether you're a pro at philanthropy or new to philanthropy, or whether you're just having a shift in your life circumstances that has you thinking about how you might want to give back in a new way. If you're not officially in the philanthropic business, it can be a bit overwhelming. Like Kat was saying, you start with your heart, you look at the big issues you care about in the world, and it can be tough to know where to get started. It can be tough to know, oh, how do I find and select impactful organizations? How do I know I'm investing in the right organizations? How do I engage the next generation or my family or a broader community in my giving? All these questions that donors have where they can get stuck, And they got folded into these modules and the toolkit that just really helped walk people from, you know, being maybe stuck or overwhelmed or perhaps not clear on how to do something sort of giving them the frameworks to approach and create a clear philanthropic plan that they can communicate that don't really, for the, the heart that un- undergirds philanthropy really meets the head and really meets some good uh, best practices.
0: So to the Australian scene then, how much adaptation did the original toolkit need to fit the Australian circumstance and what is it about the Australian circumstance that makes it distinctive?
1: Good philanthropy has some universal principles, and I think that's really important to acknowledge how we think about interacting and engaging with the communities that we work with. There are some fundamental philosophical beliefs. I think those that are involved in philanthropy genuinely believe are universal. The obvious ones, though, that are different to Australia are tax code and our legal structures. So the obvious difference in, in the toolkit you know, addresses some of the structures that we have in Australia that are available to us to structure and, and go about our giving. And then there's clearly sort of trust and charitable law that underpins some of the restrictions that we have around the things that we can do and we can't do. I think the only other really important thing to sort of call out is obviously there are some really important intermediary bodies that we have in Australia to really make the philanthropic experience and make partnering a really terrific experience for um, the individuals engaging that uh, you know are really important to call out. And they've been called out within the Australian guide. Um, And also, we've got some data points that are really important to reference in terms of thinking about your own research, whether it's into women and girls and women and girls funding, or it's into LGBTQIA investments that are very specific to the Australian environment. And we've tried as best as we can to capture some of those data points and reference them with a view to enabling uh, philanthropists to really get under the hood of some of the issues that they're thinking about investing in.
2: Coming from a U.S. context and as I've been learning thanks to our partnership with Perpetual about the Australian context, I also was lucky to attend the Philanthropy Australia conference back in April or May of 2021. Mm -hmm. And I was so inspired by the ambition of the Blueprint to grow Structured Giving and the efforts to double Structured Giving in Australia from about 2.5 billion to 5 billion annually by 2030, I understand. So these are bold and noble ambitions. So our hope is that by substantive collaborations between universities like Stanford and partners like Perpetual Australia, we can place some role however humble and helping reach that worthy goal so in addition to the kind of universal components in the toolkit that we did not have to edit that Kat mentioned it was amazing to work with perpetual and learn about what some of the distinctions and the differences are and different giving vehicles and different policy kind of contexts in which Australian philanthropy is not only operating but but growing
0: to that then and thank you for the descriptions of uh, a bold and noble plan. I think certainly <laughs> both of those things. What do we think the audience for the toolkit in Australia is? Is there a way of assessing the size of that audience or is it very much a anecdotal basis for evaluating what that audience looks like?
1: The toolkit has been created for high net worth families um, and individuals who have some giving capacity to engage with. Now, giving capacity takes many different forms. It's time, treasure, talent, all the different resources that come out of the back of that, obviously. We are trying to sort of address some of the issues that face philanthropists as they start to go on that journey of structuring and becoming very thoughtful with their giving practice. If you flick through the toolkit, and this is one of the things I absolutely love, and I've gone through a couple of workshops with the Stanford team and with advisors, you can actually sit down and start to map out and underpin what your personal values are, what the values are of your family, how you want to start thinking about all of your resources within the context of community good. There are some sections of the toolkit that are universally accessible and a great process to go through to just reflect on what's important to you at an individual and at a family level. But then, of course, for philanthropists who are looking at going on that process, there's the additional tools there to help them think about giving more actively. Now, we know when we think about Philanthropy Australia's toolkit that there is much more capacity within the Australian marketplace for us to grow giving. So, we think anybody who is interested in being more strategic and thoughtful around their giving practices will benefit from the toolkit. But we especially hope those families that are thinking about giving their money meaning through their wealth really do pick up the toolkit and get thoughtful with how strategic they'd like to be.
2: We designed it so that somebody can go through the entire toolkit module by module and end up with a philanthropic plan at the end but also so that people who have an interest or a question about a specific topic like navigating family dynamics, could just dip into that section, learn what they need to learn, and it's full of like activities and other suggested resources. And so it's designed so that it could be used sort of like a cookbook, or so that it could be gone through sort of step by step.
1: And I love that I, the toolkit is absolutely not meant to be opened on page one and read page to page to page two hundred and sixty whatever we've we've got in there. It is actually meant to be that kind of desk companion for you when you when you feel like you get stuck or you want to test something out with your advisor or with your family. It's really terrific in in how the sections have been broken up.
0: So let's look at the content. Inspiration is a word that comes up a fair bit in the toolkit. Why is that such an important consideration for an individual assessing their charitable
2: giving path? Oftentimes, people who are giving charitably without a focus or an anchor or a grounding It can be a bit scattershot. They're giving to this, they're giving to that, they're giving to the other thing. Causes are coming at them left and right. There's so many worthy causes and organizations out there that it can be a bit scattershot. One of the reasons why we suggest that people start out with a values-based find your focus exercise is because anchoring your giving in your life experiences or philosophies, or when you take a moment to reflect, look out at the world and say, how am I responding to this historical moment? How might I mobilize all of my different resources to really respond to the moment? is an important place to start. And not just because it helps give you a kind of compass for your giving, Uh, It helps you communicate more clearly with potential grantees and organizations. And then perhaps most importantly, for a lot of people who have used the toolkit and gone through that, finding your focus, anchoring exercise, it helps you know what to say yes to, but also what to say no to and things you might want to graciously decline so that you can stay on target for the kind of impact um, you'd like to make.
1: What you need to remember is you know great philanthropy starts with warm heart and then we talk about cold eye components you know so the inspiration for me is always the warm heart aspect of bringing people to philanthropy we've got to remember philanthropy costs money right yes there are there are some tax benefits to it but you know ultimately it it costs the individual and the family that are contributing into it money there's probably lots of things their wonderful accountants and others could put to work to provide greater tax benefits than philanthropy so philanthropy has never been a single tax strategy it's a component of a, of a multiple strategy if if that's the lens that you're taking so if you want people not just to participate and come to philanthropy but you want them to do more to go above and beyond then the warm heart, the inspiration needs to be there. And I think with all of our talk around strategy and theories of change and systems and structures and legal (laughs) codes, sometimes we spend more time talking about the cold eye components and it leaves people, you know, with a little bit of a bitter taste in their mouth around what giving can and could be. Inspiration absolutely brings people to philanthropy and it's really important to remember that, but it's also really important to go back to it as a touch point for why you're doing what you're doing. And I think the toolkit does a great job at reminding those that are utilizing it that philanthropy is just an extension of what you're about as an individual or what you're about as a family. Um, and it's a realization of that.
0: If it is that warm heart that starts the journey, how do you keep that that fire burning as you go along?
1: Having run through the toolkit or sections of the toolkits with some families now, what I can tell you having worked with advisors, and advisors are critical to engaging um, individuals and families in, in philanthropy. We know that from tons of research that we've seen. They're really, really important. But what advisors tend to do is they tend to lean into the technical, right? They tend to lean into tax code and they tend to lean into compliance because that's their bread and butter. That's what they spend a lot of time thinking about and being concerned with. So, The inspiration sometimes can get lost because the advisors that we're working with don't necessarily have the tools at their disposal to help families go through the inspiration component, saying, look, we'll we'll take care of the compliance, we'll take care of the structure stuff, but let's start with the inspiration. Let's start with the values. That becomes really important. I've sat in a room recently with a family. They've got um, three kids aged between nine and 16, and we went through um, the family values process. and. It was an electric kind of session, you know, seeing a nine year old talking to mum and dad about what they care about and what they value and what they're concerned about in the community. You could see. The parents' eyes just lighting up around uh, what was possible. And by the end of it, they were sort of saying, Why are we funding the things that we're funding when clearly we're all passionate about different things and we're focusing our attention in, in the wrong way? And, you know, I've had messages from both of those parents just saying, Our car ride home after that session was just so fantastic and feel like I know my kids in a different type of way now. So, that's the inspiration component when philanthropy is about a reflection of your values. It's about learning about what other family members care about. And then the end piece, doing the philanthropy right, is just an extension of that inspiration. If we give advisors the right tools to be able to have those types of conversations with families, boy, imagine the amount of inspirational sort of philanthropy we're going to be seeing um, in our communities. And the more money people are going to be willing to put into their giving practices as well.
2: It's absolutely great. And I will say that I'm, I'm an ex-gen philanthropist myself. So I'm, on the personal mm-hmm. front, my family's foundation has existed for about 20 years. I've been involved in almost as long, but I have only been working for Stanford for a couple of years. And so even though our family has been doing philanthropy for some time, as have I, and also been working in the philanthropic sector, it was so mm-hmm. much fun, even as experienced philanthropists and funders to pick up the toolkit, pick up the values exercise and some of the other distinctions, get out our post-it notes and put them on the wall and really look at my dad's values, my uncle's values, my values, and sort of look at those anew. And our, our family's foundation is a spend down foundation. So we're entering a new phase of the foundation where we're planning on spending down in the next five years. And so even for those who are pros at philanthropy, there are also inflection points and reflection points that you need that all philanthropists need. And so doing some of these exercises can really provide a framework to do that. So as we rethink what's our strategy for our spend down for these final five years, the toolkit is full of exercises that help us walk through that as a family. And for those who are just starting out similarly, helps them walk into the activity of philanthropy in a meaningful and kind of structured way. So your question about how do you keep the heart piece of philanthropy alive, even as the years progress, as you become a more sophisticated donor, as the logistics come into play. You know, we really hope that a lot of the activities and exercises were to really there to spark connection and insight for people and their advisors and whoever else they're giving with and their grantees. Let's not forget the grantees. It really helps people communicate more effectively with organizational leaders and grantees and people in their communities that work on the issues they care about, right? You can use the gems and the insights you get out of this process and some of these activities and all of those contexts.
0: The word values did come up a fair bit in those responses. Is it possible to be a values-free philanthropist? Can you give without having a firm sense of values-driven priorities?
1: I'm not sure any act of giving can be completely free of values, right? We may not have written them down. We may not have used it to influence how we're making decisions or maybe instinctively we're making decisions based on what's inherent to us in terms of our values. But my belief, my genuine belief is that there's no act of giving that is completely free of values. Your motivations may be different at different times, but, you know, ultimately because philanthropy, particularly in Australia, does cost money, you're underpinned by some level of, of value. So I don't think giving as a practice can be values-free. You know, when we think about reflections on, you know, I'm, I'm involved in philanthropy because my family's always been involved in philanthropy and that's why I'm, I'm participating family always being involved in philanthropy is a reflection of, you know, the values that your family has passed through that are are important to you and important to generations to come. So, you know, tradition is also a reflection of values. It's perhaps talked about in different ways by next-geners who sometimes feel compelled to participate or don't wish to participate in the practice of giving, but, you know, it is still a reflection and a, and a passing on of, of values that are important to families.
2: The values can be implicit or they can be explicit in an individual's giving or in a family's giving, your giving can be reactive, or it can be a bit more strategic and proactive. Like if you want to hold all the giving together with a frame, or if you just want to give here and there to anything that crosses your path. And we're certainly not here to say somebody has to take one approach or the other. It really depends on your goals and ultimately your inspiration But um, for those who would like to have a kind of more coherent narrative around their giving and do like to think about impact, it's helpful to have some of these frames and surface some of those, surface and discover, right, some of those implied um, values that may be lurking under the surface.
0: There's a line in the toolkit where it encourages potential philanthropists to ask themselves the question, What aspects of your identity are important to you? Why is identity a relevant consideration?
2: That's part of that values and issues reflection moment. And this isn't to say that your direct and immediate lived experiences are the only frame for your giving. Um, You do not need to have been incarcerated to care about prison reform, for example, but what is important is to just take those reflection moments, consider who you are in the world, consider your kind of strengths and consider the assets that you have to mobilize, consider the things that both inspire you in the world that you want to see more and more of and try to support, or the things that frustrate you most in the world that you'd like to reform. And a lot of that really just starts with understanding who are you as an individual, where are you as an individual, what are your resources, and then how can you mobilize those resources effectively and in support of the causes and the communities um, that are really on the front lines of a lot of these issues.
1: I think your identity is one part of how you walk in the world, and it's always important, I think, to have you know that level of self-awareness particularly when you're thinking about philanthropy as an interaction point with different communities, you know, communities whose lived experience and uh, have walked in the world in in, in different types of ways. So to to have an awareness of your own personal identity is super important and it can influence in good ways. But, you know, obviously in in philanthropy, I think self-awareness and understanding what's important to you and why it's important to you is a really critical component.
0: You mentioned this a little earlier, and I'd like to explore it a bit more, please, is that if you're already on the journey, what are the upsides in consulting the toolkit? What can what can I get if I'm already a couple of years in to my philanthropic journey?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, life is never static, right? Families are always changing, your circumstances are always changing, and the world is always changing around us. So the toolkit is not a resource that is to be used once and you know one and done resource it's something that you can refer to again and again at different points in your journey for example perhaps you've been giving to a set number of causes for however many years but something unexpected is occurring in the world for example perhaps a global pandemic and you may not have been giving to public health in the history of your your giving or your you know foundation or whatever it is you give and so all of a sudden you find yourself needing to step up into the historical moment in a new way and step into a new field and then think through, like, how might I engage in that? Or how might my family engage in this new set of challenges? And you can loop back to things like the toolkit to say, OK, let's take this issue of public health or this issue of pandemic or consider how it's impacting our communities or even some of the organizations we have may already have been funding. And let's use this toolkit to sort of dive into this new area, this new topic and help us really frame how we think we can most effectively engage in a sort of new challenge or a new topic.
1: We would never expect a business or an entrepreneur to think one and done around their strategy and their business planning. And in fact, we're critical of organizations, you know, the often pointed to Kodak and, you know, how they were so set in their ways and weren't thinking about the evolution of the markets that they were operating in. We have to remember that philanthropy does not exist in a vacuum where the rules of normal society and how we work and how we engage and how we interact and how we plan and how we pivot don't apply to it. Um, it absolutely applies. And in, in many ways, it's more important because we're interacting with communities that in many instances are vulnerable. So we have to go back and we have to keep testing ourselves. We have to keep thinking about our practice. So I don't care whether or not you're, you're one year in or you're 10 years in. It's really important to have the framework to go back and keep testing yourself and keep engaging with those who are a part of your philanthropy to just make sure that it still feels right and it's still working the way that you'd hoped for it to work and that you're engaging with communities the way that communities have an expectation that you engage with them. I think Jeff Rakes is a perfect example. You know, if somebody can walk out of having been an absolutely leading business person a leading philanthropic institutional individual at the forefront of one of the largest foundations in the world. And if they need to come out and, and really continue to test their own thinking and to test their own giving practice and to test how they engage their family on an ongoing basis... I think there's something in that for all of us, even those of us that think we're pretty good at this thing. We need to go back. We need to keep testing ourselves. And if you do that, not only will your philanthropy be better for it, but the communities that you're attempting to engage with will be better for it as well.
2: I appreciate your business analogy. We lead a lot of workshops for donors and advisors. And one of the things we often say when we're doing that values exercise or creating a focus statement and then walking through some of these other components to have people get a bit more organized, get themselves sorted about their philanthropic engagement. It's like, you know, you wouldn't start a business without a business plan. So we really encourage people who are interested in getting involved in philanthropy to create a philanthropic plan. And as with businesses, as Kat said, so with philanthropy, as times change, as your assets change, as your resources change, and as the world changes around you, businesses need to revisit their plans all the time, and so do philanthropists.
0: So what about the younger philanthropists who already have a very clear idea about what they want to fund and how they want to do it? What can they get from the toolkit that will provide them with some degree of comfort or engagement?
1: Nick, I think you're you're speaking to a cohort of individuals I've not met um, in in many ways, and I deal with a number of young people in their 30s who have done well in tech space and are quite rightly thinking about philanthropy and how they can give some wealth back. They have many of the questions and many of the challenges and are at many of the inflection points that uh, individuals that I work with who are post-retirement and are now thinking about sort of the next stage of their life, utilising philanthropy to contribute back to communities. And I know when you've met one philanthropist, you've met one philanthropist, right? I think that's very, very true. But um, many people come into philanthropy thinking they've got a really clear idea around what they want to do. And as they start going through the journey and the process things become a little bit more muddled and things aren't as easy as they thought they were going to be or systems and roadblocks exist that they weren't aware um, existed. So, again, I would say this toolkit, it is for the individual who thinks that they've got everything nailed down and they know exactly where they're going. Some great tools in here to test whether or not you do actually have those things nailed down. Uh, And it's also great for those individuals who will acknowledge, you know, I know I'd like to do good in the world. I know I want to put my wealth to work. But I'm I'm not really clear on on the pathway to to doing that and doing it really well. That for me, regardless of age, regardless of you know how individuals have come to their wealth, um, you know a lot of those things seem universal to me.
2: When it comes to next gen, as we know, that's not a monolithic uh, kind of group or entity. You have some next gen philanthropists or social impact investors who come from inherited wealth. You have some who have made it themselves. There are different mentalities in some ways to these groups and then many different mentalities within these groups. And perhaps by way of our geography at Stanford, we end up spending quite a bit of time fostering and working with what we consider emerging donors from the Silicon Valley world. I actually have a workshop with a bunch of them tomorrow. And what they are is whip-smart. And so the good news is they often know the topics or the issues that they're passionate about, but they don't necessarily know how to go about it, or how to go about it most effectively, and so they are voracious learners. So a lot of the curiosity and the research capacities that they would uh, apply to their success in the business world, they also apply when they they're in starting to engage in this world of philanthropy. Like, how do I do this well? How do I tap into the research and the best practices that have come out of institutions like Stanford PAC? So we're just continually researching lots of new questions, and they want to learn. You know, they want to learn about those best practices, they want to learn about what are the main takeaways from some of the research, latest research that we're doing, so that that informs how they do what they do. Even if they come in with a lot of clarity about the topics that they're really passionate about, and maybe sometimes some ideas about how they think that should go, we always are trying to encourage humble engagement and humble philanthropy. And you may be an expert in the business world, But that doesn't necessarily mean that you can swoop in and become an expert on education or become an expert on incarceration. And so we are always encouraging people to, yes, bring your passion, yes, bring your learned skills, but most especially... Bring a humble heart and your ears to listen to leaders and community members who have been on the front lines of some of these big issues, you know, for their entire lifetimes and learn from them how they see the world and what they think might actually be the most effective approach, the most of mobilization of various resources.
0: So speaking of learning and listening, what have been the feedback and the lessons from the first two editions of the toolkit? What's been built into it or what have you learned from the community and the response?
2: I'll say I'll just jump in. I've I've been working at Stanford for two years, so I joined the team when the beta version of the toolkit had just been crafted and drafted and created. And because also because we're at Stanford, you know, we have a design school and we have something of a tradition of prototyping and experimental thinking. And, and so I sort of joined the team just when the beta version, that first draft of the toolkit and some of that initial research with donors and advisors had been done. And then we were saying, okay, let's, let's get this across the board to publish it. And what do we need to do or add in there? And I would say that we um, are always looking and learning and researching at our lab. And so you have to publish, we publish the toolkit when we publish the toolkit, but our research continues. Like we are doing new research initiatives every year on donor behavior. Like, for example, how does your profession impact how you give or you don't give What are some of the latest and best thinking on how to incorporate diversity, equity and inclusion into philanthropy? How do people balance an interest in political giving with giving to traditional nonprofits? There's so many topics that are constantly coming up in the sector. And so the toolkit was published, but we are always adding chapters and modules um, online that are free and available to everybody. We have some new chapters coming out on participatory philanthropy and participatory impact investing. Um, And even we have a piece that's coming out about thinking about an impact portfolio. So thinking about your philanthropy to traditional nonprofits as just one piece of an overall impact portfolio that may also include impact investing and ESGs and all that good stuff. So we are constantly adding to the toolkit and modules in different ways. So thank goodness for the internet for allowing us to be able to continue to build. Um, and I expect that as people in Australia, whether that's perpetual in the work that you're doing, or as other people read and engage with the materials that there are many things that we have missed or many things that are specific to the Australian context and new modules and new research and new thinking that um, should and, and could be done. And so we really look to all of you to be our partners and thought leaders and continuing to sort of add to this basic set of um, you know, kind of information and, and concepts and practices that we've, we've sort of laid out so far in the toolkit.
1: We started off on this journey with uh, Stanford, I think about sort of five or six years ago. So I think we were an initial beta testing sort of site. We had our folks from the D School at Stanford come out to Australia and, and work with some of the families that we're working with and some of the advisors across our, our network. and. Obviously, a lot of iterating um, through that process. And I often go back to that sort of Maya Angelou uh, statement when you know better, do better kind of stuff. And we're at a point where this is what we know around how to engage and how to interact in philanthropy. But as, as Heather said, there's a lot of things that we're learning from communities around the role that they want philanthropists and philanthropy to play in building thriving environments for all individuals. So, there's a lot of mouth shut, ear open conversations that take place that ultimately influence how we think about what needs to go into the toolkit. So, we're excited to continue on the journey with the Effective Philanthropy Learning Initiative at Stanford. And Borders hopefully opening across this year. We'd hope to have Heather and, and others from the Effective Philanthropy Learning Initiative at Stanford out in Australia to do some of that listening and, and engaging around the toolkit as well.
2: Yeah, the advice we give to donors about uh, about listening is advice that we try to take ourselves. And I know we are very grateful for the longstanding relationship between Perpetual and the Stanford Centre on Philanthropy and Civil Society for the opportunity not just to share what we've learned, but to learn from you all what you've learned and what you have continued to learn.
0: Kat, you mentioned the importance of advisors in the discussions a little earlier. What kind of engagement have you had with advisors and how do you actually socialise the toolkit with advisors to increase that degree of engagement?
1: When I first started out at Perpetual just gone nine years ago, which is amazing to me, I, I remember picking up a piece of research from Wendy Scaife at ACPNS that talked about the role of the trusted advisor. And, you know, after kind of key peers in, in your network, you know, the trusted advisor is the most critical person in both bringing an individual or a family to philanthropy or being a blockade to individuals participating in, in philanthropy. So it's super important that this toolkit was designed partially with an eye to the advisor um, and it tested with an eye to the advisor and, and ultimately what they required to actually sit down and, and go through a process with a family. We've obviously um, at Perpetual really benefit from having uh, a cohort of advisors within our own institutions that we've been able to be to test uh, a lot of this work uh, with Stanford around so that's the Australian context but we've also worked When we had the Dschool school out um, in Australia with accountants and lawyers across our individual networks to really understand, you know, how different types of advisors who engage with families in different types of ways and at different uh, moments in their philanthropic journeys could make use of the toolkit. One of the things we're absolutely agnostic about as a philanthropy team at Perpetual is we want to grow giving in this country and it's an all ships rise kind of scenario. So we continue to work with trusted advisors across a network. And I personally, and I know our team are absolutely up for any conversation or running workshops with advisors outside of Perpetual as well to support them. And being able to deliver a better experience for individuals and families who are going on their philanthropic journey, it's absolutely vital. And if we're to hit that philanthropy Australia goal of doubling giving, then we need to to really focus in on the advisors and, and engaging uh, with advisors. So the toolkit is available to all. It's it's free online. It's on a Commons license. Obviously, if you jump onto the Stanford PAX website as well, they've got some terrific resources that advisors can also use uh, in terms of PowerPoints and, and the like to, to guide families through a process. So the tools are there. What families I think have an expectation around now is that their advisors are able to do this work with them. whether it's talking about philanthropy specifically or whether it's talking about growth and impact investing and, and ESG investing, this is a really critical tool for advisors who are putting their clients at the center of thinking about their wealth.
0: That was the Philanthropy Australia podcast. I'm Nick Richardson, and thanks for listening.